Welcome to season two of Books and Rhymes, the podcast that makes you fall in love with reading while flipping the script with a musical twist on your favourite books. I invite guests to pair books with songs or albums that spark the same emotional connection. I'm your host Sarah, a West African in the diaspora with a deep abiding love for the written word. Join me on Mondays as I take you on a musical journey through the works of new and classic authors. Season two begins with one of three special interviews with the shortlisted writers of the 2020 AK O'Kane Prize for African Writing. In today's episode, I am in conversation with Erika Sugo Anyadike, a multi hyphenated creative powerhouse whose subversive story, How to Marry an African President, is currently shortlisted for the 2020 Kane Prize for African Writing. We use selected music curated by Erika to unpack her story and discuss, among other things, depictions of female partners of powerful men, writing for a specific audience and writing against a singular African narrative. We discuss the process of writing How to Marry an African President and what it means to truly demystify the process of writing. Read the shortlisted Kane Price story, including How to Marry an African President, online at kaneprice.com. Tweet your thoughts on this episode by using the hashtag Books and Rhymes. Follow Books and Rhymes on Twitter and Instagram. The song you heard at in the intro and outro of this podcast is titled Reset by Miyakum. That's Miyakum spelled M-E-A-K-O-O-M. The song is available via Bandcamp and you can click the link in the bio to listen more. Enjoy the episode. Hi Erica, welcome to Books and Rhymes, the podcast. Hi Sarah, glad to be here on the podcast. <laughs> how, do you, how do you pronounce your full name? Okay, so my full name is Erika Sugo Anyadike. I'm Tanzanian, but I'm married to a Nigerian. I was gonna say! Yeah. I was like, that's an Igbo surname, you know? That's a very Igbo surname, Igbo to the max. <laughs> Welcome to Books and Run the Podcast once again, where we are discussing your 2020 shortlisted story titled How to Marry an African President. Ooh la la. <laughs> Yep, <laughs> that's the title. Ooh la la. So this story was shortlisted for the 2020 AKO Ken Prize for African Writing. Before we go straight into the whole books and rhymes conversation, talk us through when you got the email saying, Erica, bloop, you've got mail. Talk us through, you woke up in the morning, you had something for breakfast. And- so no, when, when I got the email actually was... Um, I can't remember when exactly it was sent. Uh, you know, in, in London, you sort of like, um, we're two hours ahead of you, technically. Yeah. So what happened was, I remember getting this email at about 9 p.m. at night. That's when I sort of checked. And I, I normally, I, I try not to check my email, but I did for some reason check. And it was 9 p.m. And, and I remember kind of going upstairs. And, you know, I exercise and I work out. I'm telling you this because it's relevant to the story. I went upstairs and I, I was out of breath. And I think uh, my, my Nigerian husband <laughs> thought we were being burgled. Because <laughs> I was like, babe, babe, <laughs> we sure listen to the Kate Price. <laughs> so yeah, I was very excited and I finally managed to get the words out. And you know, obviously he's, he's lovely, he was happy for me and I was very clearly thrilled. Because you know, it is the most prestigious prize for African writing. So it was a big deal, it is a big deal. You know, and a lot of the writers I admire, you know, have actually been on that list before. So to be on a list with, you know, people that I consider luminaries, to to kind of, um, you know, have people that I respect and admire, like the Kane judges, think that I belonged in that firmament was a pretty good feeling. You know, people like to pretend, I think, that they're cool and laid back and easygoing, but, you know, in my story. There's a line that says, remember, we all crave approval. And we, we all do, don't we? Validation is important. 
So um, I felt validated. That's a, a really kind of, I think, succinct way of putting it. With the Kane Prize, um, it's very prestigious, as you say. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And shortlisted writers, they, um, they come to London and they um, go to events. You know, you conduct face-to-face interviews. But this year, due to the Rona or the trifling mm-hmm. Rona as I like to call it um, <laughs> things have sort of have been upended so the question I have for you is that how has it been you know uh undertaking the requirements of the 2020 of the 2020 AKO Ken Prize publicity in light of the current situation well I mean I think it's pretty much as you said human beings we're social animals And nothing can quite replace actually interacting with people face to face. But, you know, you do the best that you can. So, you know, for example, we're doing Zoom now. And even though we're just recording the audio of this, it is actually still nice to kind of connect with you and see you visually. Um, You know, we're vibing off of each other, which I think is really important. Some of the interviews that I've done have been written interviews, which is which is also okay. I'm a writer. So, you know, the written word isn't um, anathema to me, but I have enjoyed actually being able to do it via Zoom. It's about networking, even amongst ourselves as writers as well, but also getting to meet other people kind of in the in the literary industry. I, that is, um, that's definitely one aspect of it that I'm missing. But like I said, you do the best that you can and you interact with people. And, um, you know, I think the, the, the whole kind of just getting our stories out there, you know, and promoting ourselves, but also, you know, promoting the, the Kane Prize and everybody has a brand, um, the prize and the writers included. So I think we're all kind of playing ball and going along with that. Um, but I, I do hope, hopefully, that we'll have the workshop at some stage. I do hope that we'll get to meet each other. We've met each other via Zoom and we've interacted on a WhatsApp group, but nothing can quite replace actually interacting with each other face to face. So, as you know, Books and Rhymes, the podcast, uh, explores the intersection of literature and music. I do that by inviting guests to pair books with songs or albums that spark the same emotional connection. Now, because we are discussing your story, How to Marry an African President, in the context of the AKO Kane Prize, I have tailored the question to suit your stories. And can I just say, I love your answers and I love your song pairings and I've just been <laughs> bopping through to them. <laughs> but let's talk about how you, your process of curating a playlist to your story. I mean, I think, um, you know, there've been a lot of differing perceptions and interpretations of this story. 
and none of which I feel are necessarily wrong at all, because I think the way the reader approaches the text is perfectly valid. What you intend as a writer, you hope that you manage to achieve, but I think you do need to, to leave a little bit of room and a little bit of space for subjectivity and interpretation. Mm. Um, but I was very acutely aware as an intersectional feminist, I was acutely aware of being a black woman writing about another black woman. So I chose some of the songs in terms of, um, you know, having them kind of be representations of some of the themes that I was trying to unpack in the work. So I think some of my song selections will probably be fairly obvious, but I think that some of them will be unexpected. And that's really what I was going for. So I'm looking through your song pairings at the moment. And mm -hmm. I mean, there was one song I was like, yes! The <laughs> ITCH by Meredith Brooks. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yes okay. we can't say that we can't say the word you can you can but it just means that you know itunes and the podcast hosting people would flag this as an explicit um, episode and i oh. and i want the children to listen to it so yes. they can indulge in your amazing story Absolutely. Um, so question if someone just hadn't read your story and just listened to your curated playlist what mm -hmm. would they take away from it or how does it tell your story I mean, I feel like that's hard to say because some of the songs I think are self-evident, but I also think some of the songs can be interpreted in a number of different ways. What I would like them to take away, I don't know what they would actually take away, but what I would like them to take away was that I was writing about somebody who was complex mm -hmm. and somebody who was also just human and had made choices and those choices had consequences and that she had to live with them, which I, I actually think basically really is the human condition, isn't it? I mean, nobody is perfect. And people, you know, make decisions, some of which they regret and some of which they're incredibly grateful and happy that they made, yeah? So ultimately, I think I would like them to assume that the protagonist was a, was a complex woman who made complex choices. <laughs> so now let's get into how to marry an African president. I read this story, right? I started reading it. And I mean, I'm going to be honest with you, I was quite disconcerted, not in a like, oh, um, disconcerted by the style of writing, no, disconcerted by the story itself, because you pull the reader in. As a reader, I was trying to find my feet in the story, because you have a second person narrator. To me, it reads like, um, it reads like an instructional to someone. And I'm asking myself, who is this narrator? How do they know so much um, about this world that they are telling our protagonists? And then I also thought to myself, you know, having gone back to reread the story, I thought to myself that it is a story about corrosion, you know, a story about the corrosive, um, the corrosive impact of patriarchy, the corrosive impact of colonization, and also the corrosive impact of neocolonization, how all of these are manifested in many different ways. And I feel that you are speaking to um, people who are trying to wear clothes that are not, they've not been measured for, and they're trying to, um, they're trying to function, you know, mm -hmm. in a new skin mm -hmm. that they've never occupied before, but they're trying to find new and new ways of navigating it you know and so i thought to ask you a question in the spirit of books and rhymes i thought to ask you to ask you which book or story or song inspired you to write how to marry an african president and pair it with <laughs> a song that sparks an emotional connection 
Okay, first of all, I don't even see why we're doing this interview. <laughs> <clears throat> I'm leaving. Like, I'm done. Like, why am I here? <laughs> I was like, Neo colonization. <laughs> Empress new clothes. <laughs> I was like, I might as well go. Just talk to yourself because you got it. You, you really have hit the nail on the head. I mean, when I was writing the story, um, obviously I was inspired by a newspaper article about uh, tanks rolling into Harai during what was ostensibly a bloodless coup to um, depose President Mugabe. Um, and, and the genre I chose is a genre called biofiction which is basically when you write a fictional story about a real life character. Um, and obviously the, the stuff that I wrote about that relates to her was actually in the public domain. But there were certain things like a certain interiority of character and interior monologue, um, certain fictionalized events that I put in there because they were very deliberate. So I need to, you, your question is quite detailed. So I'm gonna answer your question in um, two parts. I'll talk about the music, but first I wanna talk about the second person. Because I think a lot of times when people interview African writers, they, they'll talk about the post kind of colonial themes in their work, which is completely valid. And those themes are, are completely relevant and they are absolutely in my work. But what I really would like to have a discussion with you about, like woman to woman as well, is the importance of highlighting the craft that African writers bring to their work. So all writers, I mean, just, just literature in general, when they teach you about, um, point of view, they teach you about how the second person is a challenging point of view and is really very difficult. And I knew I was writing about a woman who people had very strong opinions of and, you know, had um, extreme reactions to. And so what I wanted to do was I wanted to use the second person, which is the you, to make sure that the reader is, is empathetic in a sense, is, is kind of complicit, but also compassionate. So I wanted to kind of force you to engage with the text by saying, what if this was you in, the, in, 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 the, in this situation? What if you were the one making these decisions? And so some of the things that I put in there were like thoughts about when, you know, the protagonist um, feels oppressed by wealth, you know, literally feels like she can't breathe. Because I think for a lot of us who've been in that situation, right? Like where somebody, maybe you have a friend who's incredibly wealthy and they invite you somewhere and you're like, look, I can't, I can't do cocktails at the Four Seasons. We're gonna have to go to the McDonald's and, you know, or just, you know, around the corners of Burger King, no offense, Burger King, but you know what I mean? So <laughs> those are some of the things that I wanted to engage with. So it's very important to kind of reduce that narrative distance between the protagonist and the reader. And I thought that the second person was a way to do that. And that speaks, I think, that's, that speaks to craft. Um, now, in terms of, of, uh, of the song, song uh, choice, Although I'm writing about somebody that I, I feel a certain sector of readers will, you know, instantly identify and instantly sort of relate to, I've also noticed that there's a trend towards something called hypergamy. So there's like this kind of resurgence in people looking for sugar daddies. I don't know if you've kind of seen that. But, and I think that there's, I don't know if this is maybe some kind of weird feminist backlash or perhaps maybe people feel that they've been taken advantage of, you know, and so they're trying to counter that by saying, you know, when I associate with a man, I'm going to make sure that I get something out of it. And that something is usually material or monetary, right? So I thought, okay, when you look at kind of these things that are happening here in Kenya, they're called socialites. And usually they're looking for sponsors. In South Africa, that phenomenon is blessees looking for blessers, you know? So you have sugar daddy sponsors, blessers, but what you basically have across the board is this phenomenon happening and this kind of, um, you know, uh, uh, 
uh, turning back towards this notion of hypergamy, which is this notion of marrying up. And in, in to some extent, social mobility or upward mobility rather has always been about that, right? And I don't know if it's because a lot of women have experienced like that they hit the glass ceiling. And so the only way to get ahead, maybe not the only way to get ahead, but one of the easier ways to get ahead is to marry a rich man. Um, and sometimes even when you're working, unfortunately, sometimes one of the ways to get ahead is to be taken under the wing of like a male mentor, you know, and that person sort of opens doors for you. But that's another story. I think there was a song in, that came out in Kenya called Susanna. Oh, Susanna, I hope you're happy now. I see you flexing on the ground with your sponsor. Susanna, I hope you're happy now. And so what that song was about, you know, he says, I see you flexing on the gram with your sponsor, Susanna, I hope you're happy now. I see you've changed your skin color and your hair is longer now, you know, which is about weaves and which is about skin bleaching and, and all of these things, which are phenomenon, which is a phenomenon of different variations of this phenomenon that we actually see on our continent. So I thought, okay, this is a great way. It, that song didn't strictly inspire the story, but it was a great way to kind of tie that narrative, which is set at a very particular time and place, into a narrative that speaks to a phenomenon that is happening today. So I, I chose that song. And also I wanted, um, a lot of my songs I think are from different parts of the world, but I really wanted to start this off with an African song. When I asked you, about um, the book or story that inspired How to Marry an African, you gave me a very long <laughs> Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so you were inspired by a newspaper article about tanks rolling into Harare during, during like you said, the blood, bloodless coup to oust President Mugabe. And you mentioned specifically Grace Mugabe. Um, you went to a high school in Zimbabwe mm -hmm. um, and you've always followed up on Zimbabwean politics which I'm like oh so the I mean you're Tanzanian mm -hmm. married to a Nigerian mm -hmm. went to school in Zimbabwe and you picked a song about Kenya <laughs> for a story titled how to marry an African president yes I remember um is it Ty Selassie who talked about the global village Mm -hmm. But people usually talk about migration in the context of external migration and Africa's relationship with the West. Mm -hmm. What I found particularly interesting in the mapping of your, the inspiration of your story, your song pairing, your experience, your childhood experience at school, and your, um, you know, your, your marital experience is that there is an intra-African migratory story going on that makes you who you are. Mm -hmm. So there are two, more or less, two thoughts weighing in my head. One is the homogenization of Africa in the story, in the sense that if it wasn't for the title, there are, there are no geographical markers in the story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then you, as a person, you have, experienced, you have experienced the continent in many different forms. So one, how does your story, How to Marry an African, how does it move the conversation forward insofar as this distilling of the continent into one narrative? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's an excellent question. There's certain things that I think apply to the continent as a, as a whole. I think the, uh, 
the history of uh, colonialism on the continent is definitely something that most of the countries on the continent can talk to, right? And have experienced. So when I, I address some of those aspects in my work, I felt that some of those aspects really could have taken place anywhere. And that's why I, I left those in. And I think it's really wonderful that you spotted that. I, one, did not refer to a specific African country. Two, did not actually call any individual by name. And I want to clarify that that is because I was inspired by Grace Mugabe. It's not actually about her. It could have been about anybody, any young woman who is married to a powerful man um, and who basically is corrupted by that power. And it's not even necessarily women. I think one of the, the, the whole neocolonization movement really can be in essence described as, I think, current constituencies being disillusioned with their presidents because what happened was a lot of liberation leaders moved the continent forward, um, assumed power, and unfortunately, a lot of them became corrupted by that power and became, say, presidents for life, for example. And these are things where I think this isn't about necessarily airing the continent's dirty laundry. These are internal conversations that we need to have amongst ourselves. What are we actually doing to move the, 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 the project and you know, whatever democracy means to us in whatever variation or form, what are we actually doing to kind of move that post-colonial project forward? You know, mm. um, is say for example, capitalism working? And I'm not saying that I'm a communist, but you need to understand that I'm Tanzanian. And so, you know, President Nyerere was really kind of figures in our history as somebody who actually you know, tried African socialism. And I think because we're kind of part of a global economy that wasn't necessarily going to work and didn't work, but the intention was there, you know, the, the goodwill was there. And when he left, he admitted failure and, you know, to some extent, you know, said that what I was trying to do didn't, didn't work. But my parents themselves actually got educated in Romania because of what Nyeri was trying to do and because of Tanzania's relationship with you know, they, they were in Romania, but because of Tanzania's relationship, not just with Romania, but also with Russia, with Bulgaria, with Cuba. And so that figures, that, that, that is, figures very much in kind of the, 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 the historical makeup of Tanzania, yes, but also really, to be quite frank, in, in my being born as kind of like a middle-class kid, I had these opportunities because President Nyerere gave my parents these opportunities, you know? And so I've always wanted to kind of question that in my work. And so to some extent, yes, some of these questions are meant, um, figuratively at least, for, for the continent as a whole. That said, I am, in, in my current incarnation, I am a Black woman writing to Black women, writing about Black women, specifically African Black women. And so I wanted this story to kind of focus on her. And I'll explain. All the time, I think, not all the time, but most of the time, women are blamed for the downfall of men. And we've seen this since uh, even the Bible, you know, it's the biblical women, even Delilah, were blamed, were blamed, sorry, for the downfall of men. And so when I read this narrative about Grace, you know, people didn't seem to engage with the fact that this was a woman who, when she was born, President Mugabe was 40 years old. And yet she was kind of treated as somebody who had the power to, to, to bring this man down, you know, to completely corrupt his legacy, this great liberation legacy, the fact that he was a teacher, the fact that when I was studying in Zimbabwe, for example, 86%, which was the highest at the time, 86% of Zimbabwe's population was literate. 
But this legacy is something that, you know, I don't necessarily feel that she came and she tainted. How could she? The power dynamic between them, the age difference is so vast. So how could she be blamed for that? And so those were some of the things that I wanted to engage with. I also wanted to engage with the fact that when we're talking about politics in any African country, why is it that when, and, and trust me, I'm not, I'm not at all questioning the veracity of the stories about say grace is great. I don't doubt that those stories are true. In fact, I think they are true. But what I wanted to say was when a woman is running for office, the insults that are made about her are usually made about you know, her private parts. The insults tend to be you know, sexual in nature. Um, you know, the, and it's not just, it's even about somebody like, say, Joyce Mujuru, for example, who, you know, in Zimbabwe, when she ran and everything else, and, and even about Hillary Clinton, you know, there's a lot about like, well, if you couldn't stop your man from cheating or keep your man from cheating, how do you expect to run the country? Or there'll be interviews where she's asked about her pantsuit, you know, instead of her policies, her pantsuit, really? So these are some of the things that I kind of wanted to address is, women in the political space, women as, um, you know, as, as, as the, the, the spouses of powerful men. You're vilified if you're a Grace Mugabe and you are lauded if you are a Grasa Michelle. You have to be either or, you know, a saint or a sinner. So I think it was very important for me to just write about a complicated woman who made a complicated choice. Like I said, it was inspired by Grace Mugabe, but it's not strictly about her. And that, those are some of the things that I wanted to bring up in a sense. And those are the, some of the themes that I was attempting to illustrate in my story. If our pro slash antagonist was a living or dead musician, who would they be? And which song from the artist's discography best embodies her story? The protagonist would uh, definitely be Janet Jackson and the song would definitely be Control. I think Control would best embody the story. First Janet Jackson says, so young and so naive, I thought it would be easy. Now I know I've got to take control. And so in my story, this woman, um, you know, she realizes that even though she's married to this president and she has all these beautiful clothes and she has people open the door for her and chase everybody away when she needs to go to the bathroom, she begins to realize that she actually doesn't have love. And when she meets somebody and she falls in love with that person, she you know, decides that she has to take control, that lover is killed. And she thinks to herself, if this is what power can do, if power can make people respect you, if power can make people fall in line, this is the kind of power and control that I want to have. And so she decides that she is going to actually seek out that kind of control and seek out that kind of power. And so I thought that that song, which is again about self-determination, which is about a woman kind of going on a journey and deciding, you know, and I'm going to be a completely different person at the end of this journey from when I started. That's what made that song speak to me. And also, interestingly enough, Janet Jackson, like my protagonist, was married to a very wealthy, powerful man, and it also didn't work out entirely for her. So, boom. Yeah. <laughs> the video visuals yes. of Control is very like, duh, 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 It's, duh, very, it's very military, actually. Yeah. Extremely so. And even when you listen to this song, it's very choppy you know, very choppy, quite staccato, and it's quite discordant as well. To me, it aligns with the beginning of the story, you know, because there's this coy flirtation that's taking place between them. And you're like, hmm, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Burgundy shoes. <laughs> yes. Fab. 
fam. So I read Burger Shoes. I was like, yes, uncle has arrived. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. You can tell a lot about a man by his shoes. So there you go. Sorted Souls, um, Susanna video. Mm-hmm. It is it's interesting that that song was the one you picked to capture the, the story because the video also is set in it. It sort of blurs timelines. The styling yes. of the video yes, yes. is very nostalgic. Yes, it's, you know, it is, yes. 60s, 70s. And How to Marry an African President is about quite, it's, it's, you know, it also blurs that line as well where you feel like you're reading it in the present but the story is situated in the past. It's about contrast as well, isn't it? It's about yes. contrast. Yes. It's about, um, I'm doing my hands. Erica can see my hands doing this <laughs> and I'm hoping. <laughs> You know, when you have magnets, you know, um, when you have the same side of magnets drawing close together and they repel each other. Mm-hmm. So it's like the story is about characters who are, in a way, they're forcing themselves to come together, mm-hmm. but the, their aura repels each other. So my next question to you was, please choose a song that articulates how the narrator would respond to the news that How to Marry an African President has been shortlisted for a prestigious prize. Mm-hmm. I ask this question because I want to know if how I interpret the narrator mm-hmm. is how you perceived them. Mm-hmm. The song that I chose was Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood by Nina Baby, you understand me now If sometimes you see that I'm mad Don't you know no one alive can always be an angel When everything goes wrong, you see some bad Yeah, I think, I think ultimately, you know, again, just to, to answer that question from a craft perspective, Characters come to you, I think, in my experience. You don't choose them. Characters come to you. And when you sort of negotiate the reception of that story, they will tell you in some ways how they want to be portrayed. They will tell you how they want you to kind of to enter. They invite you to enter their space in a sense. And you know when you've been allowed in there, when you actually find a point of view that works, when you find an image that feels absolutely right when you begin the story, when you have a line of dialogue that is coming from somewhere almost outside of you or perhaps inside of you, but it's not you, it's the character speaking. So even when I write this story, I'm acutely aware that I'm writing just a particular aspect of the story. And that's why I think the song, Please Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood is so appropriate. I keep referring back to this, but the, 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 the character, the real life character who inspired the story is considered a difficult woman. Interestingly enough, again, Nina Simone was also considered a difficult woman. And you know, both of them took up space in a hostile world that didn't want to give them any room. And that's kind of what I was trying to do with this story is give my character, my protagonist room in a world that was hostile to her is to attempt to reclaim that narrative. Again, who was writing those narratives, right? But try to reclaim that narrative and imbue it with empathy and imbue it with complexity. And I think that's the kind of of understanding that Nina Simone was looking for as well. I'm not saying that they, you know, she she's, you know, 
equal to Nina Simone in any way, because I think Nina Simone was such an important voice and spoke for the voiceless. I don't necessarily feel that my character is doing that, but I do feel both Nina and my protagonist are characters that are misunderstood. And so even in, in portraying those characters, I think it's very important as myself, as the author, the person who's writing the story, to say that I don't necessarily have or possess the full understanding of this character. Like I said, readers also bring their own interpretation. Mm -hmm. So that's what the song selection was about. The excerpt goes as follows. Baby, you understand me now. If sometimes you see that I'm mad, don't you know that no one alive can always be an angel? When everything goes wrong, you see some bad. But oh, I'm just a soul whose intentions are good. Oh Lord, please don't let me be misunderstood. With that in mind, I'm going to ask you to read an excerpt from How to Marry an African President. Okay. Plot your escape, your revenge, your next move. Be an exemplary wife for months. Make cryptic comments about bad influences. Claim to have been misled. Convince him you have changed. He will forgive you. He will not know that you will never forgive him. By the time you'll ask him to secure your position as head of the Women's League, you'll have butted him up sufficiently, having ensured that everything will be as he wants it, that his needs are met even before he realizes what he requires. It is not solely the women's backing that you'll need. Acquire the support of youth leaders, mostly men. They're not dinosaurs like the sycophants that surround your husband. They are modern, like you. None of them is over 45. Lavish them with gifts and business opportunities. Let them glimpse what life would be like under your patronage. Ensure your popularity is entrenched. Speak at political rallies. Hear the applause grow louder at every one. Your ambition grows with it. You'll do this over a matter of years. Slowly entrench your presence in the country's politics. See comprehension dawn on your enemies' faces as they realize how serious you are. Your husband is no longer the authoritarian figure he was, tall, forbidding, black ramrod straight. His shoulders droop. He falls asleep at the dinner table. Still, he is respected and revered. What he says counts, and he has crowned you his political heir. Watch army tanks roll in an, in an inexorable march towards the presidential residence. Hear the onerous clank, the metallic tread on tarmac, and realize that this is the soundtrack to your demise. Smell the tear gas in the air, the scent burning your nostrils, pinpricks of moisture scalding your eyes. It will be a hot day, but you will shiver, your blood congealing in your veins. Your husband will assure you it is all for sure. He is the head of the armed forces. They listen to him. Doubt him for the first time. You know how the army veterans hate you. You've heard the talk. Him they can forgive. They know his history, his credentials, but you'll be reduced to that thing between your legs. Your only power that of a young woman to turn an old man's head. Chafe at this. It has always irked you, but that is of no consequence now. Attempt to rally your supporters. Arm a few members of the security forces still loyal to the president. Consider that people may do things for money, but they are far more circumspect about being required to lose their lives. There will be no battle. Instead, a half-hearted resistance as you hold yourselves up inside State House. They will take over the national broadcaster, their hateful faces beaming into homes. They will claim it is not a coup. In truth, your husband will be ousted by the army generals who once enjoyed his favor. They will convene a meeting with him, treating him with deference maintaining the illusion that they are negotiating. 
but it won't change the fact that there will be gunshots around your home, that you and your children will be crouched down in the kitchen, huddled and humiliated. One officer, bolder than the rest, will tell your husband that while they are sorry for betraying him, they could not allow you to ascend to his position. Even during the meeting, they will look around and you'll imagine them as vultures assessing your collection of expensive furniture as if it were carrion, calculating what they will take. Envisage corrupt Swiss bankers wondering whether they can siphon the cash that you have stashed away. You've heard the stories. You know what happened in the Congo. It is only a matter of time. You'll be spirited away in the dead of night, concerns for your safety finally upending your pride. He will call you from time to time, inquire about the children, meet you continents away when he has to travel for medical treatment, but they will not chase him from his country like a dog. They will invoke witchcraft to explain your influence over him. You lord him, you are a siren, you dashed his legacy on the rocks. They will be cause for retribution, people will want you to do penance. You will not be just an African president's wife, you will be Eve and Delilah. You will be every temptress that ever lived, every bringer of bad things. They will absolve him of responsibility. His sins washed away in history, receding from memory the way waves retreat from the shore. He can stay, they will say, but you must leave. Pause and reflect. Selah. Wow. <laughs> Even Delilah, honey, every temptress that ever lived, every bringer of bad things. That's the woman's lot in life, man. Actually, that's Lot's wife. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> Thank you, Sunday wow. school teacher. <laughs> I mean, okay. Okay. I was not prepared for that turn in the story. The way it began is not how I expected it to end. I okay. If you were to describe the narrator as a character in the story, how would you describe them? I think the narrator would be one of those aunts that advises you on how to maintain your marriage. You know, everybody has that auntie, everybody has that older woman that sort of tells you, you know, certain things that you should do. And, you know, the, the, there is even a European version of this. You know, when people say be the, the iron fist and the velvet glove, that's really kind of the same type of advice. You know, be, be soft, be the soft power, you know, be diplomatic. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You know. It's better to be wily than to whine. That's something we've all heard a version of that, really. And I think that if the narrator was going to be something like that, she would definitely be a character that was dispensing advice to the to the protagonist. Because I read the narrator as being very cynical. I thought the tone of the story was very cynical. It is with that cynicism and with that sarcasm that I asked you about um, how they would respond to. Um, the news that House Marian African president had been shortlisted for a prize because I see them as someone who's jaded. Specifically, if they if they were in front of you right now and they opened the email like you explained at the beginning, they were the ones who opened the email and they saw that their advice has now been turned into a short story. And this advice, based on the experience of um, a neophyte that they have advised, based on the experience of the neophyte has been nominated for an award how would they respond to it i think there are two things here there's the response of the protagonist and there's the response of the narrator mm. if we agree that the narrator is a seasoned elder advising a neophyte on how to capture a man and how to keep him after capturing a man i still think the nina simone song would be perfectly valid i think generally um you have two types, I think, of these older women, possibly more, but you have a you have a, a woman who will really stress to you how important it is, like, you know, be secretive. You know, keep a keep a bank account and don't tell the man that you're keeping a bank account and putting money in it, you know. Um, I think we've all heard a version of that. Mm. So there would be a certain amount of reticence, but I think I think it, it's it's important to note that for the most part, and this is what I mean about giving your characters autonomy and also being humble, you know, understanding that you are always going to represent a subjective view. You can never tell the truth in totality. You can only tell one aspect of, of, of a story. And, you know, I wanted, again, the, the, the use of the you is I wanted to, bring the, to, to invite the reader into that space. And I wanted to shorten that narrative distance. But if I had to speak for, for the narrator, and in fact, even... For the for the for the protagonist, I still think that that song would be perfectly valid. Please don't let me be misunderstood. You are only representing a certain side of who I am. You are only representing one aspect of what I'm saying. Someone could read it as cynicism. Someone could read it as very kind of practical, instructional advice. You know, this is how you navigate the world. Because for a lot of people, they do feel quite cynical about the the, the space that they occupy in the world. Right, like. It's really hard to be idealistic with some of the things that are, are going on. I mean, even the current historical moment that we are in, both with Me Too and both with, say, something like Black Lives Matter and with um, even just, you know, the behavior of police within our continent, because Black Lives Matter is about African-Americans, right? Mm -hmm. um, but even with sort of, say, police, police forces and certain, you know, structures, um, in, in within the continent itself. There is a lot of cynicism there with the way we perceive our governments, for example. And this is something that obviously, you know, we can we can discuss and we can talk about as being two African women 
um, talking yeah. about an, an African character and talking about our continent. There is, to be honest, a lot of cynicism. And I think that a, a, a song that kind of encapsulates that and says, please don't let me be misunderstood is important because that's how we feel about the stories we tell. You know, when we talk about how to write about Africa, you want to be able to be honest as a writer. You want to write about things that are important to you, but you're worried that, um, you know, people will interpret it according to their own motives and according to their own perceptions about the continent. So even I, as an author, when I write this story, I'm not trying to say all African leaders are corrupt. I'm not trying to say all African first ladies are greedy. I'm also trying to say for the for the people that are outside the immediate audience, because I'm I'm writing about a, a universal experience within a very specific setting, within a very specific moment in history. But I'm writing about what I think are universal emotions, and I'm trying to write about a character in a in a humane way, you know. I also want to say to audiences, please don't let me be misunderstood. Mm. I'm not ashamed to say I am a black woman, an African black woman, who is writing primarily about African black women. That, that is who this is for. And I feel like everybody can get something for it, but I'm unapologetic about occupying that space. Imagine you are a musician creating a masterpiece in the form of how to marry an African president. Which musician comes to mind and which song from the discography best conveys your process of writing the story? I really love this song and I'm thrilled to answer this question. So this is written by my namesake, Erica Badu. And the song that I selected was Tyrone, the live version from the live album. See, every time you come around, you got to bring Jim, James, Paul, Let me explain why I chose this song. Um, and, and this is what I, I meant when I said at the beginning that I feel like the songs that I've, some of the songs that I've chosen are going to be very different in terms of what the audiences, you know, what listeners will bring to them um, versus what I meant. So I like Tyrone, and I think that the song is incredible because of the call and response nature of it. So the live version is brilliant because of her interaction with the audience. And that in effect is what I want my work to do. I want it to be a dialogue between the audience and I. And I, I think, like I said, it's really worked because people read the story differently. Some see it as a feminist text, um, others see it as a cautionary tale, an indictment of corruption and greed, and others actually see it as an actual how-to guide. And like I said, all of that is, you know, all of those responses are valid. And it means that readers are bringing themselves to the text, their perspectives and their opinions. And I want to take us back to what you said when I was doing the reading and you kind of commented on it and you said the way the story started is very different from the way the story ended. And that to me is the same thing that Erica Badu, Badu does in, uh, in this song, Tyrone Live. So it starts, it starts off and it's really playful. And then, you know, at the end, you know, there's a little twist where she says, but you can't use my phone. <laughs> <laughs> which I just really loved. And what's great about this is this is a woman who is, you know, she starts the song by, by writing about or singing about a man. And this man, you know, is, you know, is really stingy and doesn't want to give her any money and is constantly calling his friends and his cousins. And he makes her ride in the back seat and so on. And, you know, he doesn't want to give her any cash. Um, and, you know, the, the twist is that although the song is about this man, she doesn't say, she doesn't really name who this man is. She says, you better call Tyrone. And the song is actually about Tyrone. How great is that? 
that for me was so much fun. I remember, and when you hear the way the audience like loses it, like they laugh, you know, there's this moment of like, they recognize this character. They recognize that the, the character is so ubiquitous in terms of women's experiences, you know, that they don't, the character doesn't even need to be named. Yeah, I know Tyrone is this incredibly kind of popular name and, you know, that African-Americans all know sort of like a Tyrone. I think there's also Tyrone Biggums and so on. But how quirky is that song, you know? So you initially come into this song, she invites you into the song and you think, okay, it's gonna be about this guy. But she just says, you know what? Every time you come around, you've got to call Jim, Jake, Paul and Tyrone, right? And then she says, you better call Tyrone and tell you to come and get your, you know, ISH. So, <laughs> you know, exactly. So, so and then the, the, the twist at the end, you better call Tyrone, but you can't use my phone. That I was like, oh, I'm so here for it. So I wanted a twist at the end for my story as well. So I felt like, um, you know, if, if I could do something that approaches this amazing masterpiece that, that Erica Badu did, I don't even think necessarily, I wouldn't put myself in that, in that equation or that category at all, you know, but I was trying to do something similar is kind of make it look like it's about one thing and then bam, flip it on the audience and say, actually, this is about more than what you initially thought it was. So you come in thinking, ha, 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 I know this woman, she's such a terrible person. And then you're invited to kind of empathize with her. You're invited to feel a certain level of compassion. And that's what I was trying to do with the song choice. And that's what I was trying to do with the story. The thing, so when you were reading out the excerpt of the story, it confirmed what a note I made about the style of the writing and the flow of the story. Your writing is precise, given the subject matter. And there is a lot of containment in the writing of the story which I think feeds into, well, my opinion of the character in the sense that she's holding herself back. It feeds back to what you said about, at the beginning, about the characters telling their own stories through you. You seem to be in the same experiential writing as Toni Morrison, because she has said that her characters, you know, speak through her. So, First question. Can we just take a moment to just... I know, right? There's a lot. No. Can we take a moment to just... You put me in the same sentence as Toni Morrison. Can we, <laughs> like, can we have a minute for that? Like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> okay. Ooh, honey, we have to record this for posterity, honey. You have to leave this in. Like, what? <laughs> Once more for the people in the back. What? <laughs> Anytime a writer says that, that um, the characters speak through them, it always piques my interests because um, as a Nigerian who grew up in a religious household, you know, some people might say it is possession, but we're going to leave that over. <laughs> <laughs> it is, though. It is a kind of possession. You know, that's why Toni Morrison wrote a lot about, like, ghosts. You know, there are actually a lot of dead girls in Morrison's work. It's not about Morrison, so we're not going to, you know, get into it. Because if we get into Toni Morrison, honestly, like, we would talk all day. But yes, I, I do think it is a kind of possession. You're not wrong there. I don't think it's demonic possession necessarily. You know, I just think that... Um, you, you, th there is there is a mysticism. Like honestly speaking, part of that process is when a character says, "Hey, hey, 
And then sometimes you're like, you know what? I have stuff to do. Okay. I have to do this. I have to do that. Nobody's going to like the story, dude. Nobody likes this character. Nobody, you know, wants to know this kind of stuff. Nobody likes the second person. Please stop. Like literally, it's almost like apparitions. It's almost like being haunted. And you, you just, you can't, you know, for some reason, the image of those tanks rolling into, into, you know, into Haraya and just kind of, I was like, why? There's been so much written about this. And, and, and the story wanted to come as fiction. It didn't want to come as a journalistic piece and it didn't want to be simple, you know? And so absolutely, I think you're spot on with that comment about possession. It really does feel like that. Like a whole so how do, you, how do you exercise these, you know, to use your words, ghosts, well, in, in Toni Morrison's context, but how do you exercise these possessive characters or these characters that have possessed the mind the only way to for you as a, as, a, as a writer how do you how do you do that right the only way to actually exercise is just to write about them the only way that they will leave you is if you actually sit down and you write and the beautiful thing is once you found your entry point into it because sometimes it really is an image you know it's sometimes it's an image sometimes it's a line of dialogue sometimes it's just you know it's just a character or sometimes it's a story that you've heard and you're like okay so i've heard this story what is it about this particular story that I'm supposed to be channeling? What is it about this particular story that I am supposed to communicate that I can do that other people haven't done? What, what is the aspect of the story that hasn't been told that is trying to be told? And that's why I say it's not about, it's not about grace. It's actually inspired by her, but there is another figure somewhere. There is somebody that has been in a situation like this that is trying to kind of speak through me as the writer. Um, and so, so in a sense, uh, the only way to do that is to actually write. And when you start the writing and you know that you have managed to, to channel the story properly, the writing is almost effortless. Look, every writer will go back and revise and say, okay, I want to do this and I want to edit the sentence and I want to put in less adjectives here and you know more description there and I want to use sentence fragments for this portion here definitely craft comes into it but that initial outpouring that initial catharsis when it happens and you're doing it properly it is literally almost effortless it is a beautiful thing i'm sure even painters must experience that to some extent i'm sure other craftsmen you know that that aha moment when you're like you write something and and you know we talked about validation earlier but you know what is really beautiful is when you do something and just intuitively instinctively you feel like you're doing something right like you write a sentence and you're like that's a good sentence mm. you know you, you write a description and you're like that is exactly what i'm trying to say when you have inspiration meet craft and you actually you know you manage to put your intention down on the page that is fantastic so it's it's really wonderful when people validate you but i'll be honest when i wrote the story i was like if nobody likes the story if nobody reads the story you know you know what good job like i was like you know what i'm in, i'm really enjoying what i'm doing and i'm enjoying it that's the key word is you enjoy it it isn't um you know people talk about midwifing the story but it isn't the pain that comes with you know it really literally is like like you, it's speaking through you you know, you birth it, but it isn't, um, once you've gotten it, it isn't a painful childbirth. It literally is like just a, a, a channeling. That's the best way I can describe it. You are a medium for the story. You've gone through this process and I love how you describe the process of writing when you receive an inspired story that you're just compelled and you just compulsively need to document before you have your freedom. Now, when you are under this compulsion and you have you have more or less um, 
you have released that which was within you that demands to be birthed. How do you marry this release? How do you use your craft to carve out this story given the inspirations that you have? How do you marry them together without losing the essence of your inspiration? I think I don't actually start by thinking concretely about theme. I tend to be attracted to theme. I mean, I'm a filmmaker as well, so I, I usually have questions knocking about in terms of what is the story that I'm trying to tell. And so I start asking myself certain questions. So for example, as a fiction writer, I'm much more interested in the how and the why rather than just the what. You know, I think there's, there's, a, there's a time and a place for journalism. I think it's incredibly important. And I think sometimes you must just get the actual facts and try to be, I don't believe in objectivity, by the way, even for journalists, but I think you should try to be um, as objective as you possibly can be. But when you're in a fiction space, you can actually play a lot more with your own subjectivity and feel a lot less guilty about it. So I started asking myself how questions and why questions. So one of the why questions was, why is this woman being blamed for you know, the, the, um, the corruption, if you like, of her husband's legacy? Why is she being blamed as a person who has brought him down? And how was it like for a woman to be courted by a president when she was just, say, a secretary in the typing pool? What does that say about their power dynamics? What was that interaction actually like? How does it feel to look back on choices that you've made and then realize that there are consequences that you may not have anticipated? And how do you then grapple with those consequences? How do you, you know, de determine your life and determine yourself when you've hitched your wagon to a man who is not only older than you and therefore also functions as the father figure who molds you, but is also incredibly powerful and occupies a particular position in society? How do you define yourself when you are almost instantly being defined against the, the shadow and, the, and the, the, the ghost or the specter of his former wife who was practically a saint, you know, who was practically canonized in a sense, right? Like, so how do you kind of grapple with some of those things? How do you deal with some of those things? So there were a lot of how and why questions that were really interesting to me. And the ability to, to, to use craft in order to be able to accurately portray your intention you know, on paper or on your computer or whatever, to be able to actually put your intention down in the way that you meant it to, to, to um, and again, not necessarily meant it to be read, because like I said, people bring different readings and they project themselves onto your work. But you know when you have created a sentence that actually telegraphs your intent properly, right? Like you know when you are happy with what it is that you've written. And, and craft, I think, is very important. So I constantly work at craft, I constantly try to improve. I constantly, you know, look at like sort of say things like sentence structure and syntax and try to deconstruct those things. I look at writers that I admire and try to see how they manage to actually, um, you know, what, what, especially in reading writers that have written work, sometimes you read it, right, the interviews that writers give about their work and what they were trying to do. And then you go back and you reread that work and you actually see how they did it, the mechanics of the writing, how did they do it? Um, and I think improving your craft enables you to become a better writer right? and it creates that intersection that you were referring to, the intersection between a theme and an idea and the story that won't leave you and then using the craft to kind of put that idea down on paper and to feel satisfied with what it is that you've put and to hope that even though people are bringing their own interpretations to the story, what your intent was is at least available to some of the writers who will show up, you know, who will show up for it.
So I mentor writers. I've been mentoring writers for a long time. And I want to say this because I hope that somebody hears this and, and you know, finds some value in it. It is very important to demystify this process of writing. I did talk about how ideas and themes and um, stories appear, you know, and, it's, and to some extent I said that, yes, it was like a possession. But I want to just make it very clear that even though that part I do think is genuinely magical and mystical, I do feel that the, the, the craft aspect is something that we need to completely demystify. You don't need an expensive MFA, Master of Fine Arts or whatever. You don't need to go to an expensive school. All you need is YouTube University and a willingness to work hard. Like if you just decide to, to improve your craft, if you read, if you try to, um, you know, find books maybe about writing or if you have, you know, some data or a bundle or something and you can look at videos on, on writers talking about writing, you know, you can actually improve as a writer. It's really important to get people out of this idea that, you know, writing is kind of this ivory tower space. You just have to be willing to work hard. You have to be willing to engage with texts. You have to love writing. You have to love reading. You have to practice. But if you're willing to do that, you can absolutely improve as a writer. I think it's important to let people know that. Is there a book about writing you will recommend to writers? Artful Sentences, Syntax and Style by a writer called Virginia Tuft. I think it's very important to know how to craft sentences, how to use syntax, um, what works, what doesn't, why you're doing what you're doing so that you, you're purposeful as a writer. That's a really, really good book to, to read. It's not an easy book to read. It's probably sort of an intermediate uh, level book, but it's one worth kind of, you know, dealing with and, and deconstructing and engaging with. It's, it's not an, an, an easy or a light read, but it's definitely valuable and it's definitely worth it. You said that the important thing is for people, for writers to demystify the process of writing. You know how sometimes there are some sentences that sound really good? It's like, yes, I catch it. But what does it mean? So are you able to give, to explain what you mean by demystifying the process of writing and give an example of a demystified process of writing? When I talk about demystifying the process of writing, I just mean when you find a sentence that you love, write it out, write it down, and then deconstruct why that sentence works. What is it that you like about the sentence? Is it the imagery, right? Is it the, you know, and by imagery is that, you know, the sensory imagery, imagery that the writer is using. So for example, is the writer describing something visually? Is it a smell that he or she is describing? Is it a sound? What is it? Which, what part of the sensory imagery appeals to your senses? If that is what appeals, is it the diction? Is it a particular word that the writer has used? Do you like, like, for example, I was reading, um, a rereading actually, Toni Morrison, The Bluest Eye, and she talks about quelling a rust about. How many times do people use the word quell? How many times do people use the word rust about? I love that, right? Like, so, so for someone like me who loves language, I'll be like, wow, quell, that's really interesting. And then I'll look up and I'll say, okay, what is the denotative meaning of quell? What is the connotative meaning, sorry, denotative or connotative meaning of quell? I'm not going to go into this because this isn't like a, um, an English class, but you deconstruct sentences. You try to analyze what it is you like about those sentences. Is it the way the sentence begins, for example? Have they begun by talking about, um, you know, is it, is it, have they become the preposition? Are they saying, you know, 
in the corner of the room, for example, is that way the sentence starts? Does it start with like a subject and a verb or does it start in a different way? You have to be able to understand how the English language works. You have to be able to understand how grammar works and actually deconstruct the sentence. Understand what it is you like about the sentence, you know, and you, 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 you'll start to see something that appeals to your sense of style. You know, one of the things that people say is, for example, that you should actually write sentences out and you should imitate them. And by imitate, I mean, you don't write the sentence out exactly as it is, but you say, okay, she has begun with an adverb, right? And she, you know, or, or she has begun with whatever it is she's begun with. She's begun, maybe the, maybe the story begins with a sentence fragment. So it doesn't have your standard kind of subject verb predicate. Maybe it starts with the lights blue. Okay, so for me, I'm like, oh, why did the lights blow? Is it a is it a power shortage? Is it you know? What, but you literally need to be able to understand grammar. You have to go back and just look at grammar and look at how does grammar work. Like you have to be willing to do the work, deconstruct the sentence, understand why it works for you, and then try to kind of see if you can reproduce that style in your own writing. But this is what I mean when I also say it's important to understand why the writer is doing what they're doing. So don't just copy. Understand why have they written it in, in, in this way? What were they trying to portray? Were they effective at portraying it? And then if you are trying to do something similar thematically or whatever it is, then you look at how you can actually incorporate some of that style into your own work because there's nothing really new or original under the sun. It's just, everything has already been said. At this point, it's really, how do you say it? And, and also be confident in terms of what you're bringing to the table as a writer, your own perspective, your voice is valid. It's, it's important that you have, you know, that you're heard. You have something to say and nobody else can say it quite like you because of the, the unique set of experiences that you bring to the table. In the excerpt that you read um, from How to Marry an African President, the reader does not really know what happened to our protagonist, you're a filmmaker, you're a producer, and you're also a writer. Where do you see our protagonist story going and which medium best fits her trajectory? If I were to tell her story in another medium, I, I feel this medium is perfect, to be honest, but if I were to tell her story in another medium, then, you know, logically, I guess I would make a film. Because what I also love about film is when you have a really great actress or actor, you can convey so many things without dialogue. I love dialogue as well, but I also feel like there's, there's a lot to be said for just a facial expression. There's a lot to be, you know, you can, you can allow spaces. I'm, I'm a huge fan of allowing an audience, be they a reader or a viewer, room for interpretation. And that's why I also didn't end the story in a conventional sense. Again, you were completely right to call me out on my, my Morrison fascination. But and in fact, even Alice Walker does this. And to some extent, also a writer called, um, I want to also reference African writers. I mean, I, I love Toni Morrison, I love Alice Walker, but I really want to talk about somebody like, say, um, Mariam Abba, who's an African woman who wrote a story called So Long a Letter. I, I like stories that resist easy narrative closure. And I also like films, I think, that make you work a little bit. I don't like anything that spells, that spells things out too easily for people. I think audiences, again, should be invited into that space and should occupy that, that space in their own way. You know, the, the way, it's, it's a kind of like a signifying practice in a sense. What do you bring to the table as an audience member? How do we create this thing together? Because once I've written it, it's, it's like you have a child and at some point they're gonna, you know, leave the house and go to university or enter the workspace and how they're received, 
you know, you hope that you've raised them well, period. That's it. How they're received, then, you know, they go on to sort of be their own person. Which book or short story collection would you recommend to listeners and readers who wish to read something similar or are looking to further explore the topics and themes in how to marry an African president and pair it with our song? So, Alice Walker has a short story collection called In Love and Trouble. And um, I really like Alice Walker's female characters because I think a lot of what Alice Walker does, I'm actually, you know, walking in her footsteps, trying to do the same thing. I'm, I'm interested in kind of the same narrative strategies that she employs. I'm interested in the themes that she explores. I'm interested in the struggles that her characters go through because I find myself trying to sort of depict similar struggles in my own work. One of those uh, characters was Celia in the Color Purple. But in this particular collection of short stories, there is a character called Myrna. And Myrna is a character in the short story titled Really Doesn't Crime, uh, Really Doesn't Crime Pay. All these characters, again, are after self-determination and being treated equally. And so I thought of the song by Beyonce called If I Were a Boy. And I decided, you know what, that would be a perfect song to kind of sum up the double standards that women are held to in society. Drink beer with the guys And chase after girls I kick it with who I wanted And I never could confront So there's a line when Beyonce says, drink beer with the guys and chase after girls. I'd kick it with who I wanted and I'd never get confronted for it because they'd stick up for me. And in a sense, why I sort of tied that into my story is because I feel that, you know, presidents are never necessarily, well, no, they're, they're, no, that's not fair. They are criticized, but to a great extent, and I think this is because of, again, the complex contribution that certain presidents make to their countries is you can't completely vilify them because they have done good things and they have advanced, you know, the, 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 the social and economic conditions of their people. They have actually tried to do something good and, and, you know, for a long period, often it works. But when they actually start to do things that are anti, you know, democratic or when they start to oppress people or suppress people, they aren't really sort of, held to account in quite the same way as when you have, say, a first lady oppressing people. And maybe that is because she doesn't have the same historical legacy that they do. But I do think that when women behave badly in general, they are just held to far higher standards. They're just really vilified. You know, I can't say the actions are necessarily blown out of context because, you know, that's not necessarily true. How do you quantify that, right? Like, what is the appropriate punishment? But I do think that they are definitely held to higher standards. So I really like the line when Beyonce says, you know, I'd, I'd never get confronted for it because they'd stick up for me. I think when men behave badly, often, you know, they are other men who will enter the fray and stick up for them. And sometimes when women behave badly, there are women who stick up for them as well. But I just generally feel that women are definitely held to higher standards. And I wanted to address that in my work. And I feel that Beyonce addresses that in her song. If people want to engage with your work and want to further explore your many creative outputs, oh la la, where can they find you? Well, I'm currently writing a book. So I will let people know when the book is out. Um, I can be found on Twitter. I can be found on Twitter. I've been published um, in several different um, 
anthologies. But the most important thing I think is that I'm writing a book. And like I said, I write for people. I want people to read my writing. I write about black women, but I also write about human beings and the human condition. I try to illuminate that. <laughs> but anytime now that I'm on Twitter, anytime I'm, I'm you know, published in, um, you know, a literary journal or something, I'll be sure to put it up on there. So at Sugo Erica. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and we hope you fell in love with Erika Sugo Anyadike as much as we did. And we hope you enjoy the conversations as much as we did listening to it. Next week, I will be in conversation with Remy Ngamiji, the Namibian writer whose story, The Neighbourhood Watch, is also shortlisted. Join us as we go on another exciting musical and literary journey. Thank you for listening to this episode and have a most excellent Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.